0: Listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno.
1: Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. This week's guest features somebody whose post military career work with veterans. Maybe as if not more important than his military career itself. We'll get to him in just a moment. Our normal set of announcements. Please continue to follow us on all the social media sites. Help grow the social media fo- uh, growing Grow the following. That's what I want to say. Help grow. We need more people. Uh, Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Both of them are where you find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, Make sure you guys follow us there. Keep up with the show. We love interacting with you guys there as well. Feel free to give us comments and guest suggestions there. If you want to do guest suggestions, you can always email us at producer at hazardground.com, and we'll take them there as well. Make sure you guys remember our promotion with Amazon. You go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. It'll redirect you to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the great charities and organizations featured here on the Hazard Ground, like the one you're going to hear about coming up today that I have uh, intimately been involved with at one point in my career. As well, uh, Apple Reviews. Need them, love them, keep them coming. Wherever you guys get these podcasts, give us an Apple Review. Tell us why you love the show. Give us five stars, and we continue to grow the show that way as well. On to this week's guest, who spent 26 years in the United States Army, retired as a colonel. He had two combat deployments, one to the Gulf War and then one in the invasion in Iraq. In his post-military career, he was the chief, Veter- chief executive officer of the Veterans Outreach Center, and he currently works as the CEO of the Headstrong Project, which is one of the better and more notable veterans organizations out there. He is Jim McDonough joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Jim, welcome, and thank you so much for being here.
0: Hey, Mark, thank you very much, and thanks for that uh, plug for the organization.
1: Uh, Listen, Uh, Headstrong is an organization I'm intimately familiar with. Uh, Several of my friends have been tied to it, including Garrett Cathcart, uh, Miguel Acevedo. As you know, uh, it works for you guys currently. Uh, I've I've had many conversations with him. Uh, This is a fantastic organization dedicated to dealing with the mental trauma and mental wounds that uh, veterans have dealt with in the post-9-11 war and global war on terror. So it's uh, one of those organizations that gets right at the heart of some of the biggest problems plaguing veterans today. So uh, plenty more on them uh, as we get through this whole thing, because it's uh, quite the rise in your post-military career and what you've done with veterans that has been incredibly uh, beneficial and and certainly something that we're, we're all thankful for. But... All that said, uh, back at the beginning, I, I, I don't want to date you too much, but it was way before 9-11 that you got in the military. So how and when where did it start?
0: Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a son of a New York State trooper and a registered nurse who put himself through college and graduated from college and walked into an Army recruiter's office in upstate New York and uh, enlisted in the Army for the officer candidate school option. So uh you know, bunch, bounced out of college, went right into the Army officer candidate school. And I'm, I'll, I'll date myself, Mark, for your listeners. That <laughs> was 1982. So I sound like an old guy, but uh, I I'm actually don't feel it. I'll feeling. just feeling. tell you I'll that. Tell you so, that. Yeah. yeah, it was just yeah, a really was good, was ride, good into really ride into in the, the Army,
1: Army. Very enjoyable very career. career. I and mean, it's interesting, you know, that time frame was very, like, sort of post-Vietnam, like, drag, like, you know, the military was looked down upon. Did you get? Did you get sort of you know, I, I guess frowned upon for making that decision.
0: You know, I think I was an outlier. I'll be honest with you. Like, you know, to, but you know, you know, my uncle served in Vietnam. My dad was a Marine in the Korean War. I grew up as a kid playing army in the woods. So for me, it's what I wanted to do. I also grew up in the shadows of a a, a SAC base. Uh, you know, a Strategic Air Command Air Force base at the height of the Cold War. So, and the guys I went to high school with, their their dads were pilots. Who came back from Vietnam? Some prisoners of war. So you know, when I hung out at their house um, with my friends from high school, for me it was natural to go in. But uh, the guys around me—I only had one guy who went in with me. From he went into the 82nd as an uh, artilleryman, and uh, we both walked into the recruiter at the same time. It was only the two of us. So yeah, it was a little strange. I think you know, but it was—you got to remember—it was like thick of the Cold War, which. You know, for those who have been around for a day or two, it was a pretty serious time, you know, in the world. And
1: uh I gravitated towards it, Mark. For me, it was a natural fit. Strangely, uh, here we are again. Uh Not so yeah. cold. Not so cold war. A little bit more warm, but, you know, uh, no, it's, it's come exactly. full circle. Um So did you know what you wanted to do when you when you enlisted? Did you know what, what you wanted no. to do in the Army? You just sort of were winging it? Yeah, well, I wasn't winging
0: it. So Norwich University in Vermont, ah. was where the, uh, the, the Army in the day produced tankers. That was where you went to become an armor officer. And uh, I really thought I was going to go into armor. And then, you know, you meet guys in the Army, you meet guys in uh, – and, and they're like, this isn't a bad branch. So fortunately for me, I finished high enough at OCS I could pick what I wanted to do. And uh, I, I picked, believe it or not, Air Defense Artillery, small branch, very technical, um, you know, and and uh to be honest, Mark, it had some unbelievable duty assignments. Holland, places like you know, you'd never get to as a kid from New York State. I ended up in a place in then West Germany that wasn't even on the map, uh in the middle of the woods on a on a hawk site, hawk weapon system. And it was geez, it it, it was pretty freaking intense, to be honest. Like uh, you know, we we were manning a a fully capable missile system that could shoot down enemy planes on a 20 minute notice. So you, the pucker factor was pretty real. I was situated across from the East German border. You know, I served on then the East German border, which was a big deal in the Folda Gap. That, that was a term some of your listeners may remember, many won't. But at the time, at the height of the Cold War, it was the tip of where uh, war was going to break out. 11th yeah. Armored Cavalry Regiment was my regiment. uh, Now the OPFOR, the National Training Center, the old 11th ACR was a storied unit from Vietnam. And to your point about like when I went in, like most of the guys I went in with, the salty NCOs and and some of the guys who've been rifted as officers and became NCOs at the end of Vietnam, those are my leaders when I first came in the Army. And it was a wild time because, Jesus, I served with some guys who were like grizzled from Vietnam I had a 1st platoon sergeant, Sergeant First Class Rowdy Yates, Um, you know, crazy Vietnam veteran as there ever was. But what a terrific NCO, like knew how to push soldiers the right way, knew how to train a brand new lieutenant. Uh, And I feel like I, you know, back in the day, serving with guys who served in Vietnam was a blessing because they'd been there. uh, And they helped you really focus like on your shit, not to not to be crude, but no, fine. Yeah, they paid attention to like, look, you need to get your ass straight. We'll keep our ass straight. And, and this will work best if you focus on the things that take care of us. So for me, the introduction of the Army was full of Vietnam veterans. Um, my, my first day on the site I was assigned to in the woods, I walked through the gate shack and there were bullet holes in the gate shack from the battery commander um, kind of discharging his sidearm. Uh, in the gate shack, he got pissed off at the gate, Gary. He was a Vietnam veteran, and that's how wild it was. It was the Wild West. like ew. And so, you know, I, I look back on it fondly, but I grew up with a lot of guys who served in Vietnam, and they kind of taught me the ropes in the Army.
1: Yeah, uh, discharging your weapon today at a gate shack might result in some paperwork in the military. That yeah, just, not even, didn't even just back then. Ball, just spitballing that there might be some... Yeah some headaches uh, that result from that different, different <laughs> times, obviously. Yeah. Uh, Very different. I mean, listen, I, I still tell the story. I remember one time my platoon sergeant as a lieutenant, like literally smacked the crap out of an E-5 who just was screwing up left and right. And I just, I watched the whole thing up and I just, I was, I'm going to step outside. You guys take care of this, this NCO business. I'll, I'll be outside. If anything. Uh, I don't know what happened after that. Exactly. All, all I know is he didn't screw up after that. So uh, we, we, we don't, we're kind of the gentler army nowadays, Jim. So, yeah, it's very changed. different, yeah, say the least. Was there any point in this early on in this experience um, where you thought that maybe you had made a wrong decision, you were just going to get out after four years, or, I mean, or... Um, you know, I, there was a brief period when everybody
0: was talking to me about that very point, Mark. Like, it was... But I'll tell you, I was in love with, the, with it. Like, I fell in love with it immediately. Like, for me, like, being around soldiers like, was like a life, you know, dream just to be around... Uh, normal guys serving in the country. So I, I dug in while everybody else went to Cameron Brooks and all these other headhunter firms and got out. Um, I loved it. And I felt like I was pretty good at it. So I was like, you know, why, why, why give up on something you're good and passionate about? And it was, you know, it was a, so I really didn't give it much thought. And it was only once in those 26 years that I actually thought about it. And that was, it was that first tour of duty in, in Germany. Um, and uh, I didn't really think that hard about it. Mm-hmm. I, I really didn't. I liked it, you know. I was having a good time. Who gets to live in Germany as a 22 year old, you know? And and uh, and and be around some knuckleheads from all over the country who just come together to try to do the right thing every day. So yeah, we had our share of problems. There were there were Jesus. That's back in the day when drugs were, you know, really on the increase. You know, I was a I was in West Germany. Hashish was big, uh, you know. So I, I still remember a story. General Fred Franks was then Colonel Fred Franks, famed Vietnam veteran, lost a leg in Vietnam. He was regimental commander of the 11th ACR, and he had a uh, field grade UCMJ authority over uh, our soldiers. I remember marching my platoon, my platoon, to an Article 15 hearing with General Franks. And in his office, he just rapid fired, removed sergeant stripes, threw him in the trash can for drugs, I mean, we must have busted that day on a unit analysis. It must have caught 10 guys in my wow. platoon back in the day. Yeah, you'd be on site guys would be smoking hash in uh, uh, crumpled Pepsi cans in the middle of the night. That, that was the army in 1982. So that's crazy. Yeah. It was still, in the middle of cleaning up a lot. Were, were you, know, you still of part bag. of the
1: uh, the two beer lunch rule or the three beer? Were you around? <laughs> or was that before in you? Some
0: places, you know, graph and beer was a little bit like that. Uh, big training center in, in Germany. Uh, yeah, there were there were there were those things. You know, uh, one of my buddies who was a first lieutenant. I can tell this story. Uh, he got nailed for it. He used to come to work with a, a thermos full of white Russians. And everybody thought it was coffee, but it was white Russians. So it was a little bit the, like the Wild West, Mark, back then. And then the Army slowly started cleaning itself up, you know, starting then. It was the yeah. post-Vietnam period, and there was a lot of cleanup to be done. Drugs had become a big problem in wow. the Army in those
1: days. Huge. Crazy. Um, yeah. So as you finish up in Germany, what's next? I mean, how long are you there for, yeah. and what's your next assignment?
0: So, you know, for me, uh, I went to the captain's career course. I went back and and, uh, I volunteered to go right back to Germany. So I did a turn and burn. I did about seven months in the United States for the captain's career course, Fort Bliss, Texas. Had our first child, uh, you know, and went right back to Germany. Because at that time, what's next for me, Mark, was the Army was fielding its big five weapon systems, M1 Abrams tank, Apache helicopter, and the Patriot missile system. So I... I went right back into battery command of a Patriot missile battery. First battalion to land in Germany uh, at the time, for 380A. I commanded Alpha battery for almost three years. You know, for me, it was, which was unprecedented. Most guys get to command 18, 24 months. I stuck in command for almost three years in, in that battery. And, uh, man, it was great. It was uh, living large, uh, brand new weapon system. Uh, kind of dominating the landscape of air and missile defense at the time. And, and I was in one of the first batteries in where it really mattered uh, and in command. So I had a great time.
1: Did you think uh, as you were going through this, like, w- did you have a plan of where you wanted to go next and what you wanted to do? And, no, and, and obviously, you know, the Cold War is actually starting to wind down at this point in time. Yeah, it right? was.
0: Yeah, because when I left Germany the second time, the wall had come down. Right. Uh, Yeah. So, you know, I was in the middle of the the, really the waning days of of the Cold War. But Mark, to your question, no, I'm not a guy with like some spreadsheet with life goals on it. I just enjoy. And I believe I serve officers like that that drove me up the wall that had, you know, marks on a calendar when they needed to be somewhere. and Never really respected that that way of life, to be perfectly honest. No, um, I actually loved what I was doing when I was doing it, and I kind of felt like I was pretty good at it, and the organization would take care of me because of that. Maybe a bit naive, but, you know, I never – no. I, I've been a, I've been a lucky guy, I guess, Mark. I don't know any other way to say yeah. it. I, I did not have a life plan. I just believed in serving, and I loved it, and I loved the people I was around and taking care of soldiers, and it seemed to be natural for me to – to just keep going in that direction, but I didn't. I didn't plot a course. I didn't want to be somewhere by some date. I just liked what I was doing.
1: Well, you had the the serious threat of military action during the Cold War. Yeah. It never comes to fruition. However, right, uh, we flipped the calendar to you know late 1990, early 1991, and Desert Shield is underway. Uh, Desert Storm yeah. is uh, is about to happen. Like, what? Where are you, and what are you thinking and feeling about yeah. all this? Given what you had. Dealt with already, so when the first Gulf
0: War kicked off, I was sitting in what the army called advanced civil schooling. They sent me to grad school oh, to nice. get an advanced degree. So I was at Indiana State University getting an advanced degree in communications, and when the war broke out, and uh, after you know, as I finished my first master's degree, I had to pay it back. So the army sent me to the uh, Pentagon to kind of uh, pay that back and. You know, I skipped over a couple of short tours in there. But, you know, the the, the next major milestone for me after advanced civil schooling was to pay it back at the Pentagon. And ultimately, you know, there I was uh, ended up being the speechwriter to the secretary of the Army. Oh, okay, Yeah. Wild ride. You know, I replaced a storied colonel, a guy named Colonel Red Adair. I remember going upstairs in the Pentagon and he's looking at me like, you know, I was a major uh captain promotable major he looked at me like you're going to replace me i'm like i'm not trying to replace you this is just where they sent me he was on his way out the door and i was i became the speech writer to the secretary of the army i did you have there, any um,
1: sort of speech writing or writing experience at all I, I guess i was a
0: good writer and and grad school is all about writing yeah and so um you know i guess at the time they must have figured i could do it you know basically in the army you're put in a lot of situations, and you're going to do your best. And you know, grad school was good for me. I came out of that; they recognized it, and they were, they liked the way I wrote. And at the end of the day, I did an interview with the Secretary of the Army, and he chose me as a speechwriter. So um, it was interesting. I never thought I'd be that guy either. That was not a life, <laughs> but it was it was an interesting time because um, it was a time when we were expanding initially combat or military roles for military women. You know, we were pushing into that world, advancing the cause of women in uniform. I was on the the, um, civilian side of the Army at that point, which was an interesting viewpoint. You weren't wearing a uniform every day? No, I did. I wore a uniform, but I worked for the SEC Army, who, you know, big civilian over the United States Army, number one guy. Uh, And so it was an interesting vantage point to look at your Army from the lens Of civilian control of the military, which people forget is how, you know, our armed forces are organized. So it was an interesting kind of ride through that. But it wore my tail out uh, over about two years. I volunteered to go to Korea. But, you know, it was I took I did a year in Korea after that. I, I volunteered to go. There was another Patriot battalion there. I became the S3 and then XO. Uh, came out on the 05 list while in Korea, a year in Korea, and uh, got selected for battalion command. It was then as a battalion commander that I deployed my battalion to the Middle East uh, when the first Gulf War was kind of still an open war and we were still sending people to the Middle East. Now, we did six month rotations. Okay, back then.
1: so where are you going and what is your, I mean, obviously, Patriots, for those who, Maybe yeah. too young in the audience uh, to remember the Gulf War. Yeah, you know there were Scud missiles that were fired by Saddam and, and yep. the Iraqi National Guard, uh, and they were shot out of the sky by Patriot missiles. So um, that was sort of how the whole war went. It was fought through the air. There wasn't a, a very large ground campaign, and when it was no. Norman Schwarzkopf, uh, may he rest in peace, rolled through uh, the Iraqi army quicker than a hot knife through butter, and they surrendered like exactly crazy right. and. There are all these pictures of, you know, Iraqis with white flags and putting their hands behind their head and walking down in single file line, just giving up very quickly. So there wasn't a ground campaign, but the the, the air campaign was was quite um, the the. Underscored major part of of that first Gulf yeah. War conflict. So, where are you going? What do you what are you told about what your well, mission is?
0: Your listeners won't even remember this, but you know it was a very short war from a ground about combat 10x. perspective. As yeah, as you point out, long buildup, getting forces, flowing forces in, building up logistics, building up all the, the combat power, and it was over in a in a hot minute. But at the end of the day, uh, it persisted from an air and missile defense perspective because. The strategic decision made by the country was to protect some key assets in the Middle East, oil fields, key centers of gravity. And to do that, we were deploying patriot battalions on six month stints uh, for years into the Middle East. So, you know, that was a very real mission. We protected a lot of critical assets in the Middle East on behalf of our partners there. And we did it for years, up until the invasion of Iraq. I mean, Operation Southern Watch, Operation Northern Watch, these were, you know, these were kind of operations that your listeners probably don't even think about every day. But those were those periods were filled with combat deployments of combat forces. You know, we had uh, prepositioned assets in theater that ground forces fell in on and exercised in the event that we were going to go back to war. And it was the same for the air and missile defense forces. We protected key air bases in Kuwait uh, and beyond. So yeah, so it was it was that kind of world. Um, but then it all changed with nine eleven. Yeah, just it just all changed with nine eleven. And uh, at that moment, Mark, for your listeners, I'm sitting in the Army War College. I first of all, I had commanded a Patriot battalion and sent it uh, into the Middle East and back. And I commanded that battalion for two years came out of command and I was selected for the war college. And so I went to Carlisle barracks and on nine 11, I'm sitting in the army war college watching the twin towers fall, you know, some 21 years ago now, as we speak a week ago, 21 years. So, you know, it it got another hot minute. It just changed in an instant for all the war college class. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we were, we were off uh, as we graduated from the war college and sent to combat.
1: Basically, you, you joined combat units. Before we get post 9-11, I just want to go back to yeah. one more question on, on the Gulf War. You know, you had come in and you had all these grizzled Vietnam veterans who were there yeah. who had seen combat, who were able to speak of that experience to you and give it to you. Now you're taking this Patriot Battalion into – or battery, rather – into into combat. You don't have any of that experience. What is What are the yeah. conversations like that you're having with your troops prior to, to heading overseas?
0: Well, you know, it was, it was interesting because we had a lot of combat veterans from the first Gulf War. Uh, and so we lost our Vietnam veterans because of age. But right. at the end of the day, uh, I had guys with right shoulder combat patches in, in my air defense battalion that we deployed with. So I had first sergeants. I, I had a great first sergeant, Ortiz. He had both Vietnam experience and Gulf War experience. So, wow. you know, yeah. So you know, I still had some old timers in the battalion. Uh, that were, were pretty grizzled kind of veterans of, of not necessarily Vietnam to the extent it was in my early days, but the first Gulf War. They had, they had deployed, you know, in the first Gulf War during those combat operations, and those were part of my battalion for that, that deployment. So, but we had a lot of youngsters, too. Like, it's the nature of the Army. You know, you're always, you know, introducing guys to what this culture is like. But the seasoned guys were very good about we got very good at deployments, like rail heading, air heading. We got very good at that stuff. And so it was not for us, SRP getting ready to deploy, like it was part of the life. I think probably more so, Mark, than the rest of the army. Like who did JRTC and NTC. Yeah. You know, we we SRP'd, we had anthrax shots, we did everything like we like we were going in for real and staying there. And there were flare-ups during those periods where you know, Patriot was deployed in 72 hours back to the Middle East for stuff like that, too. So the level of readiness in that formation was pretty substantial at all times. It really was.
1: Yeah. I mean, again, it's uh, it's interesting because even on this show, we've, we've had a hard time finding a ton of first Gulf War veterans, right? Like, yeah. there's just a very small number of them. Um, and because the amount of combat was so or direct combat was so small. Um, there's not a lot of experiences to tell. No. And I assume as a Patriot battery, even though you were being fired at, you know, what was your success rate at hitting scud missiles coming no, in? We
0: were, yeah, we were really good, but yeah. you know, it's, it's an interesting point of the conversation because if you take my experience, you know, after nine 11, you know, I, one of my sister battalions in the brigade where I was a battalion commander was, was, Five five two eighty eight. This is the Jessica Lynch unit, um, mm-hmm. the the maintenance company in my sister battalion, in my brigade. So when you look at what happened there in the early days of the invasion of Iraq, uh, your point about not a lot of combat experience, I think actually came home to roost for my sister battalion. It made a wrong turn, ended up in a bad situation. Uh, with a lot of inexperience and, and and not a not a great way to get out of it. And I think you know it was in that moment that I think and and your listeners might not even really understand this, but in the early days of that invasion, uh, we were we were kind of viewed as being liberators again, like the first Gulf War. right it Turned out not to be true. And, and so the the hype over it was minimal resistance, you know, and, and so that mentality, I think, at the end of the day, and a lack of combat experience, hardened combat experience, it got real
1: very quick for, for yeah. 518 Maintenance Company. And, and interestingly enough, we interviewed uh, the SRO, uh, an earlier guest, Dave Young, on this podcast, uh, who was saw with the, on, the members of the 502nd, yeah, the, that maintenance company. He was the, he and his co-pilot, uh, Ron Young, were also captured along with them, they went down in a completely separate incident. Um, but they, you know, the Iraqis lumped them all together. So uh, interesting story. Yeah, the Bible
0: I'm glad you had a guy on the show to talk about that. Yeah. Um, because it was, I don't think people really. Well, it was. Look, it was popularized, right? There's sure popular lore It, it was it. also
1: bastardized, like you know, the extent of the truth of what actually happened, which is what the media is want to do. But uh, you know, Correct. Now you know better.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So, you know, back to your question, though, the combat experience was different. It was from this generation mm-hmm. uh, and
1: and it was helpful because people had been there and done it before. I want to ask you, because, you know, again, the, the initial invasion of Iraq, which was your second you know deployment there. And um, you, know, you talk about the, the sort of lack of experience. You know, during the invasion, there were several accounts of friendly fire incidents that went on. Yeah. Um, between air power and ground power and and yeah. some of them ended badly for us and, you know again it's not to point fingers i mean it's, sometimes it's a for lack of a better way to phrase it it's a, i don't want to call it a necessary evil but it it is part of the uh, collateral damage of combat at times um and yeah. I, I was just curious with you guys as a patriot battery did you you know uh, not that did you experience anything like that but do do you when, when you see the inexperience of combat Um, And and your soldiers having it, how confusing was it for you guys to understand, comparatively speaking, to the to the first Gulf War?
0: Yeah. So, uh, you know, exponentially is the short answer, because. So, first of all, for my second deployment, I was the the G3 uh, Kern ops guy for the Combined Forces Land Component Commander, General Dave Kiernan Mm -hmm. uh, and and, uh, for the initial invasion. So. In essence, I controlled all the Patriot fires for the initial seven months of of the war. That's what I did for the land component commander. Um, and so, your your point about friendly, I, I experienced it, Mark. Like I I lived it. Like um, you know, mistakes are made. It's a very complex operating environment uh, where a lot of variables are in play and. Nothing is perfect, and so you know there were there were two friendly fire incidents on on my watch. Uh, one involved uh, a returning aircraft to base um, that was from a coalition forces country. Uh, that the pilots had left on their jamming pod, uh, returning to base, uh, gets tagged as a hostile aircraft, and bad things happen, and so that was friendly fire incident number 1 um, and and a second one was a uh, us naval aircraft uh that was mistakenly shot down um on the night of 1 night during the invasion as well so uh, i i witnessed uh all of that unfortunately and and it it's uh it's just so freaking complicated the operating environment when you're yeah. dealing with with all this uh, from the perspective that, that I held. Um, and, and in that there's human beings and, and they make mistakes and there are consequences as unfortunate as they are. And, you know, it was just, it, it sucked. It sucked uh, to be part of that. Uh, you know, Whereas we shot down plenty of enemy ballistic missiles and no one suffered any harm from any SCUD missile strikes uh, you know, during the invasion of Iraq and in that initial period, uh, mistakes were made in, you know, in the ground to air mode with aircraft. And so it sucked, Mark. It really sucked. There was, there were bad things that, that happened then, so.
1: Yeah, I mean, hey, war as hell, right? Uh, it, it, yeah, it
0: just, you know, you just, you don't, you don't know what to make of it until you're stuck with it. And then it just kind of, just, it just, it just, I don't even know how to describe it because it just—you can't believe you were a part of something like that. You feel horrible. I mean, to this day, you feel horrible for stuff like that. So
1: yeah, and, and it, even though none of it is intentional, there is no obviously there's no yeah. desire to do something like that. Uh, the the effects of it are lasting, to say the least. And you know, um, it, it should go a lot further than oh well that was a mistake. You know, I mean there is a certain level yeah. of accountability. Mm-hmm that we want to have for those things. But, um, you know, uh, the fog of war is real, man. It's not, you know, well, that, That's it, the phrase. It, it, unfortunately, it takes practice to get better at understanding the fog of war. And the downside of that is you don't always get through the first time.
0: No, it's not something you can
1: practice a there lot life and death consequences to bad things. So that's for sure. Right. Um, after that deployment ends, um, in, in, 2003 right it's it's end. you're there for what six seven months seven months yeah um are you feeling like you had done enough at this point in time as far as in uniform
0: yeah it um i glossed over this but in the run-up to the deployment um my parents were divorced my mom uh was diagnosed with alzheimer's and i should point out for your listeners both my brother and i We're serving uh, army colonels at the time of the diagnosis. He's an EOD guy. Um, Yeah, my brother also was an an army colonel, retired, but he's an EOD guy. Um, Along the way of the run-up to that and that deployment, my mom gets diagnosed with Alzheimer's. I come home and um, just recognize that my brother and I had done the best we could to take care of her while we were both serving our country. But she was all alone. So I I made a decision that um essentially just like you said like okay I've given it a good run. I was you know twenty-three years, twenty-four years in service at that point. Um, you know, I, I was uh I was like I, I gotta take care of my mother, like because uh, my brother was three years behind me, still pushing hard. And so the, he and I talked and the decision was like, okay, I'm gonna retire. Like I'm I'm gonna retire. And uh, I'm going to go home to upstate New York and figure it out and take care of my mom. Uh, You know, I I grew up a single parent, you know, so she did her best to take care of me, saw me go in the army, love my army careers, a little bit, pay it back. So, and also I'll point out, like uh, life gets hard the further you get up in there. Like it's, and I should say this, like, I didn't really have any aspirations of being beyond an army colonel. So I feel like, I felt like that was kind of a cool rank to punch out at. Uh I felt like it was still connected to ground truth. You know, you were still
1: you weren't caught up. You're connected because- to ground truth, but the pull is hard, man.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it
1: is. It yeah, pulls, but I didn't feel it pulls, it. It pulls hard at you. Me. I speak to personal experience right now. It's 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 yeah. a hard pull.
0: Yeah, it is. Um, but I just like I just had no I guess I didn't want to be those guys. Like, you know what I mean? I didn't, I, I didn't want to be those guys. And you know so what was, it is?
1: You know what it is? Like, here's the best analogy I can come. I, I can think yeah. of. Have you seen the movie Indiana Jones and the last crusade? Yes. Okay. At the very end, when the, the, the earth splits because they take the grail past the seal and Indiana slips and falls and he's <laughs> reaching for the grail and it's right there. And he's like, I can almost get it, dad. I can almost get it. And his father looks at him and says, Indiana, let it go. Like, yeah. and if somebody isn't there saying to you, let it go. You're really trying to grab for that grail, man. And that grail is that flag with a star on it um, yeah. that pulls you really hard in that direction. And uh, the, the hearing the words let it go or an internal struggle that I, I live with currently every day.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I can talk about that because there there are certain aspects of my life that I regret that decision a little bit. But I, I think in the, in the moment, um, I will tell you, like, what happened to me was I came back from the war um, I was in the queue for brigade command consideration and um, I did the right thing. I told the army, I wasn't interested. So I literally removed myself from consideration for brigade command. And I had been advised that if you're going to do this, you do it now, not after you get selected and walk away. Cause that's bullshit. So, right. so I was respected for the decision uh, and the, the army respected it, respected me for it. And they understood the situation with my mom uh, and I ended up assigned to West uh, in in teaching ethics in the Simon Center for professional military ethics. So it got me back to New York, uh, you know, allowed me to exit stage right uh, and and go on into the next chapter of my life. But, you, you know, looking back on it, uh, you know, my mom was one draw that was stronger than the draw to, you know, draw, drag a you know, go forward and reach for that flag. I, I honestly, Mark, I just like. I've seen a lot of general officers and like, I just, I really didn't think that was like my life. Like that was not where I wanted to be. I was still pretty young. I wanted to, you know, kick ass and take names in a, in a second chapter of my life. And I felt like I was going out on a high note. I did everything I wanted to do and I was quite comfortable and a yeah. chance to take care of my mom at the same time. So the pull was there. And every time I get pissed off, I, I regret an aspect of like, the decision, but it's short lived. Like you know, it's it, it. It doesn't bother me
1: to this day. Like no, I, I mean, uh, I, I again, I, I'm still in uniform. I'm an 06, and I I feel you know what I'm talking about. I feel that tough. Like it's it's one yeah. of those things where, first of all, the only people, the only way you get behind the velvet ropes is if the people behind the velvet ropes let you in. Which yeah, is, they, they invite you in. Which is a yeah. which is a weird thing because it's not about your your aptitude, your competency, your ratings, or whatever you've gotten. It's about whether they feel you're sort of general officer material. Yeah, that selection board. right? And that is uh, a slippery slope to stand on. Um, There's a part of me that wants to go for it because of that whole ideology that I don't like, that it shouldn't be about whether you think I'm general officer material. It should be about what I've accomplished, what I've done, um, and, and everything else. And so there's a certain component of personality that I feel sort of eliminates me from that whole group. Um, yeah. And I've had this conversation with other 06s, and I fully admit, I, I don't play the game very well. I'm too, yeah. I'm too forthright. I'm too direct. I'm too blunt. I'm too honest. And, and when I disagree and I believe you're wrong, I will tell you to your face, I believe you're wrong. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't always go well over well with certain people, because when you yeah. get in an insular circle of all people who think the same for somebody to invade that circle and tell them that you're wrong is met with a lot of resistance.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't like the trappings aspect of it. Like I I have, I have friends who are retired GOs and, you know, when the day comes when somebody else is putting your ribbons together.
1: I mean, yeah, I'm with you, you on know? that. I don't like, I don't I don't want it. I, I never wanted it for that. I want yeah, no, it you know, because like, I want that, the that, chance to lead at the highest level. Yeah. Right. Like that's that's the draw for me. That's that's what's, you know, uh the hard part is is to be able to, you know, be that close to and, and you take this notion of a ground commander, right? Were you, yeah. were, as a company commander. Because you know, I had a friend tell me that captain and colonel are the only two cool ranks on the officers. I think that's true. They're the, only, they're the coolest ranks. Everything else is a you waste, know. but captain as a company commander and a colonel yeah. are the two coolest ranks. You have this sort of Id- notion, idealistic notion that you can take that captain ideology of affecting things at the ground level and apply yeah. it when you're a GO and it's going to work. Yeah. But there's a huge gap between that ideology and what can actually go on on the ground and you start to realize as you become an 06, the other things that all pull out you from the outside and the other detractors and everything else. And all of a sudden you're solving strategic level problems and affecting the things where the rubber meets the road becomes near a near impossibility because you'll fail at the job in front of you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's just nailed it. Like, you know, and I, I do, I do believe those two ranks were my favorite ranks. I'll be honest with you, just yeah. like you probably like the, it's where you get the most enjoyment because you're, you're really, you're just really connected to soldiering. Like, I can't say it any other way. Like even at that battalion commander level, you know, that that's really a lot of fun. Like it's you're, you're pushing all the right things and it reminds you of being a captain because you
1: pushed all the right things as a captain. Yeah, the difference there is was wasn't much, nobody there wasn't wants much to hang money. around the O5. I realized that the the day I took battalion command and I looked yeah. around and everybody left the room when I walked in. I'm like, what the hell? What do I do? What do I smell? Do I need a shower? Where'd everybody <laughs> go? Because nobody wants to hang around the commander. Nobody wants to hang no, around the no, O5. They, They'll no. hang around they the talk. company commander, but they won't hang around the O5 commander. Well, they tell you that. Like, the
0: further up you go, the lonelier it gets. Yes. Like the isolation of senior level command is a very real thing. Yeah. And, you know. And so, you know, I, I just, I don't know. I was wired to just, I'm going to say this word. Like for me, I just always thought of a colonel as respect. Uh, and, I, and and then everything beyond that was just this world of of polish and other things. And so somewhat disconnected. You know, you get a phone call from a general's aide, like the general would like to run with your unit. Well, he can come down and run anytime he wants. I don't need a phone call. Like, you know, so, I, you know, when you, when you think about it in those terms, like, Somebody's going to call some poor battalion commander and say, he'd like to run with you today. Like, yeah. just show up. And, and then have everybody, have
1: everybody piss up, up and down their leg about, you know, the, all the protocol and everything else. Yeah, exactly. Now that every former NCO listening to this has vomited seven times over because they don't give a rhythm, exactly. I Exactly. I apologize to those members of our audience yeah, in the NCO. Because exactly. uh, you, yeah. you guys don't care. But it's a little peeling back of the curtain at least how uh, – not so general officers think. How's that sound? Um, all right. Period. So you're on your way out the door. Do you know what you want to do? Hey, doggy. Do you know what hey. you want to do? It's okay, dog. We, we, listen. We, Hold on, Mark. We, have, we have friends here. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Um, do you know what you want to do in post-military career at this point? Again, like my life story?
0: Not really. So, you know, my my wife at the time, Mark, uh, I remember this very clearly in the War College. asked me one question in the kitchen. What are you going to do when you grow up? Swear to God, (laughs) swear to God, like, because I was a, I was a man child in the United States Army. You know, that's how the best way I can describe it. I just liked it. That loved it that much. She asked me that question. I didn't have an answer. And she goes, well, I have an answer. We're going home. And because we've been kicking around for 26 years, I've been following you around, uh, done everything you wanted us to do. And, uh, I want to go home and be near my family. So we did that. And I, I had no job. I, Transitioned out, uh, separated, retired from West Point, moved north to upstate New York with no job and just started figuring it out. So I'm, I'm one of those guys like, no, no life plan. I didn't I didn't have like I'd like to be this. Um, Short question.
1: No, what did you figure out then?
0: Uh, I figured out that I had a lot of strengths that I didn't necessarily recognize that the rest of the world didn't. And I started parlaying those strengths, and those strengths were leadership. And I started old school. First job I ever applied for was on USA Jobs. Uh, got the job, lasted about 90 days because the ethical morass that I ended up walking into was just so freaking bad. It wasn't funny. Uh, and then I just started figuring things out from there. I became a little bit known to people. They suggested this. Uh, when I, when I, turned away from that first civilian opportunity, um, I, I, had, I had come across the idea that some people asked me if I wanted to serve in state government because of my leadership experience. So at first I said no, uh, and then I said, oh, think about it, and I, I actually became the Commissioner of Veterans Services for New York State uh, shortly thereafter. And I did that for three years under uh, then Governor Spitzer, we all remember him, uh, and sure uh, lived. yeah, it was there that I went to go to Veterans Outreach Center. I had done my tour of duty in another public sector, you know, leadership opportunity, and um, you just meet people along the way and they present opportunities. And if you're smart
1: enough to kind of uh, like go for them, things happen, which is what I did. What was it about being back in the veteran space that attracted you to it? Yeah,
0: I mean, I'll say it very simply the ability to continue taking care of people. Right. Like that's it. I mean, I, have been, I thought about this in advance of this podcast. Like I've been very fortunate since the day I took off the uniform, I've done nothing but continue to serve people who served in our armed forces and their family members. And for me, that, that it's like very special. Like, and I, it's not something I take for granted. And I realize I'm pretty lucky to have, have the, the trajectory I've had to do that. But Uh, For me, it was make a difference in people's lives who had served their country. So it was it was no different than being in uniform as far as I was concerned. It was culturally a fit. It was um, admirable. It was noble. It had honor with it. It had dignity with it. And I was around people who were a lot like me.
1: So, yeah, it was all that. So you had worked for the state. You worked for Veterans Outreach Center, which is not a non-state entity. It's a a civilian corporation. You go back to work for the state again. After mm-hmm. that, um, what are you noticing the differences between state level veterans operations and non state level slash governmental veterans yeah. operations? What's the biggest difference you're finding?
0: Well, I, I think
1: the silos
0: in which they both operate, like they're the the cross pollination between government and private sector uh, when it comes to taking care of people who served in our armed forces and their families is, is shallow that, that pool, it doesn't have much water in it. There's just not a lot there where I think as much as listeners would like to think that this is all organized and coordinated between the federal government, the States and and the private sector and the nonprofit communities that serve people. It's not, it takes a lot of work to bring synchronization about. And so I guess the biggest thing I realized was like, well, this sucks. These things aren't really working well together. Why is that? Like and and, and truthfully the muscle tissue isn't there between uh, these sectors of our of our you know our American economy and and culture. You know, states do what states do, federal government does what federal government does, nonprofits do what nonprofits do, and, and it's not great connective tissue kind of threading between those paths. And if it were, things would be a lot better. And I guess the biggest disconnect I saw was between the federal government and the states. (laughs) The states, there was a great deal more flexibility to innovate. Federal government, not so. Big behemoth. And so I guess I was disappointed in the lack of coordination between the federal government and our states. And then I was disappointed to see that transcend into the communities in which we live and work. So, yeah.
1: I mean, it's it's pretty fair to say that, at least in my adult lifetime. Uh, And I I don't know what it was post-Vietnam. I was too young. But there has never been a more universally accepted desire for a solution to a problem than there has been for veterans, both in the government and in private sector, yet that has more resources devoted to it that solves absolutely nothing than the, the crisis surrounding Taking care of veterans. It, it, is, it yeah. is actually laughable at this point in time. And when I hear politicians campaign on fixing veteran this and fixing that yeah. and that, I'm literally looking at you going, You're a liar yeah. because you can't solve this problem. If it hasn't been solved yet, when universally everybody agrees that this is something that requires attention and we haven't figured it out. You alone are not going to change anything with this. Now, that doesn't mean you can't win small battles at small yeah. levels and affect things positively for a small amount of people, and I advocate for that. Hell, I went to war in Iraq twice. Yeah. That's all you could ever do was win small battles in small areas and advocate because strategically it was never going to be what we wanted it yeah. to be. That said, no, by the way, a different conversation for a different day, but that said, I, I'm, I'm all for that, but you know, to your point is simply that the disconnect – you know, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing on so many different occasions when it comes to veterans, both in the private sector, in the government sector, uh, in every size, way, shape or form. We've we've expounded and expended so much energy and dollars on a problem to genuinely not fix it at any holistic level whatsoever. And, and I don't know if in my adult lifetime it ever will be fixed. Um, you know, yeah. I'm still personally fighting <laughs> I'm, I'm still personally fighting VA bureaucracy.
0: Yeah. Yeah, certainly to your point, there has been incremental progress made around the edges, right? Yes. There's there's things that get better. Transition is better today from the United States Army than it was when I transitioned, right? There's all those little like upticks and things getting better. But holistically speaking, like this whole of nation kind of effort that should serve to underpin the moral obligation to retain a ready armed forces and what it does after its service, it's it's not there. It's not. It's piecemeal. It's 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 a checkerboard square of of uh, items like and and the moves that we make across that checkerboard. They're they're episodic. They're transactional. They're, there's I guess the the failure is not to really present a concerted whole of nation effort that reinforces the value of military service from a post military service perspective, that your service was respected. It's highly regarded. And we're going to do the things this way because of that.
1: There's it just doesn't, it's not what it's about, Mark. It's not, I I could, I could argue that there should be a whole division within not the government, but the military itself to correct these problems before they walk out the door. Right. Yeah. Before you drive the car off the lot, make it run, make sure it runs correctly. Right. You don't take the car off and then ask to go back to the dealership and say, fix this. Yeah. Before you leave the lot, the car is supposed to work before the individual leaves the military. They're supposed to work. And they're supposed to stay within the military constraints to fix everything until they're officially done, which is what we do in a small aspect, because we have these WTUs, these warrior transition units for people who Mm -hmm. are broken before they leave active duty after combat. And yet we haven't figured out at a grand scale that for everybody.
0: Yeah. Listen, the frustration is palpable (laughs) with the, the CEO of the warrior transition battalion at Camp Pendleton. And, uh spot on like it's it's, we're we're transitioning a lot of people with a lot of issues and 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 some of them did not originate in service some originated before service exacerbated through service but ultimately we all end up out here where i am now in a community and and so there's you know in my line of work now in headstrong we see we see all that up close and personal like every day, we we deal with human failure and problems on a daily basis, and so it, it's almost like being like I, I feel like I'm a catcher on a on a baseball team. Like it's just like every pitch that some genius wants to throw is is hopefully going to land in our glove, and we're going to be able to we're going to be able to take care of that. Like and it, and it just like but we're one solution. We have a lot of you know we punch above our weight for what we do every day, but there's much more out there than than, that we're missing.
1: It's just not there. Yeah, again, uh, going around the block to get next door to fix a problem. It's a yeah, exactly. It's very much frustrating, but uh, that's not what we're here to talk about. So you mentioned Headstrong. Uh, How do you end up there, Uh, and and you know what was the big attraction to going to Headstrong after working for you know the state of New York and other other institutions
0: well short answer was the the guy i was working for was governor andrew cuomo so that'll give your listeners like some
1: some insight as to
0: what that was about as a native (laughs)
1: as a native new Yorker, i'll hold my tongue on this one
0: exactly so so at the end of the day uh you know i i I worked for governor cuomo for a year and for me the return to government was all about because they had no uh director for years and i saw like like I was at a point in my life, the good thing about people like us is you can kind of do what you choose to do at this point in your life, which is my life story, choosing to do what I want to do. So I I went back into government to kind of help them out. Uh, And then, so Headstrong, I've known the founder, Zach Iskell, you know, for a long time. When he first built Headstrong in 2012, I knew
1: Zach then.
0: Um, The ED, uh, Joe Quinn, Happened to be
1: very uh, good friend of mine.
0: Yep, your listeners, you may not even know. previous guest,
1: by the way, as well. Joe told you a story right here.
0: Joe's a great guy. So, what uh, people unfortunately, he's about, a
1: Met fan, but I don't hold that against him.
0: Yeah, but Joe and I had a relationship uh, before Headstrong, and it was at West Point. Uh, the year I was there, young Joe Quinn uh, and I uh, happened to run into one another at the Simon Center for Professional Military Ethics. So, got to know Joe Quinn as a, as a West Point uh, cadet. About to graduate and go to the Army. So he, he quit uh, being the ED, went into the hot dog business, as I'm sure his story uh, has been told. Quite delicious, uh, Feltman's
1: hot dogs. Yeah. A little yeah, plug. Story there. And, yeah. And, and their mustard is off. If you like spicy mustard, off the charts. It's off the charts. Good. Off the charts. Yeah, good. Joe, Joe's a great guy.
0: So, uh, you know, uh, Joe sent me a note that he was leaving, and I sent him a note back. Is he like, hey, this is un- unheard of, but I wouldn't mind replacing you here's a retired 06 replacing a former captain. Like it's, it's uncanny. No, nobody does it. Like, and I was like, well, here's the deal. Uh, you know, I wanted to get to a point in my life where I knew what I was doing was positively impacting people's lives in ways that we could demonstrate it. You know, there's a lot of anecdotes about what works, what doesn't, this, that, the other thing, there's a lot of shiny objects. I, I kind of was getting tired of the anecdote based approach to, like addressing the needs of veterans like so the science behind that is you know evidence based mental health treatment so there's science behind it so for me the gig was my opportunity to do something i had never done before and get involved in the hard science of improving people's lives from a from a clinical perspective something i actually wanted to do in my life was to to join a team that, whose mission that was. So Joe left. I approached Zach, told him I wanted to lead it. Uh, in about a hot two-week period, I was selected as the chief executive officer, and I've been here in my third year. So um, for me, it's something, again, something I wanted to do. No life plan, but I, I really love the organization. I knew it from 2012. I had sent guys into Headstrong to be cared for. Uh, they were pleased with the results, so I knew it from the inside out. And, uh, another leadership opportunity emerged and, uh, I, I wanted it. And so I went after it and got it. So.
1: That's awesome. I mean, again, it is a phenomenal organization. Um, and the stories that they've told, and we've had several headstrong. I know uh, on the show here, um, that have really, you know, uh, made incredible strides in their own personal lives, um, and, and getting better every day. And it's, I was, I was telling somebody the other day, you know, it's, it's, Anything when it comes to, you know, mental health from a military standpoint, I I don't I I assume it's similar for everybody else. But, you know, I feel like we are never at a destination with it uh, because combat does so many things to you that uh, the masses don't understand. uh, And from that standpoint, you're just on a journey with it uh, and and learning how to live with it and operate with it. And again, I'm not casting any aspersions on other mental health issues, but. You know, personally, through my own journey and, and everything that I've gone through, it, it's uh, you know learning to uh, adjust to life differently because yeah. of what you've been through is is a key component of survival in a post combat yeah. world. Men, from a mental health standpoint.
0: Yeah, Mark. In many ways, what I've realized at Strong's value is is that uh, it helps you maintain what you just said, your life's journey. You know, and 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 it's it's always there. Uh, people can come back into treatment and, and life changes for people. It's changed for me. You know, I'm sure it's changed for you. The ability to kind of tap into something um, such as headstrong is really, uh, there's, it's unequaled. Like the idea that you can be there for someone, uh, you know, when they, when they need you to be there, help them get well, something changes, they can come back. Like for me, there's a little bit of this that, that teaches me like, It's real value in the world is that it's there for people when they need it. Like it's like that, that I've come to learn from the inside out, like honest to God, like that's it.
1: What, uh, or or without names, obviously just what are some of the stories of some of the people that in your time Uh at Headstrong have really stuck out with to you that, you know, you're like, this is why I get out of bed every day. You know, these are, these are the people, these are the stories that we Uh create that really solidify my, my whole existence in this organization.
0: Well, I, I think the the immediate one that comes to mind is um, when when you have someone who takes their own life while in treatment. Uh, and you know, I remember, you know, it, it, it happens. You know, there's no, there's no perfect score here. Like, it, and it. Yeah, that's a great it, way to phrase it. Yeah. There, there is no perfect game, and when someone. Makes a decision to end their own life, the impact on this organization is one that makes me double down on trying my best to ensure someone else doesn't do that. Like it's, you know, and I've been leading this place uh, in my third year. It's happened to me twice um, since I've been here. Um, And it it just kind of does to me like I get I get pissed, to be honest, like I'm trying to figure out like, um, what did we miss? And then you realize you just did your best. And sometimes it's just not good enough in in, in what people are facing in their lives. And so I think for me, Mark, it's like the story, that, the stories that resonate most are the stories of failure, because it. it as if I needed to reignite my passion any more than it already is. Like, it just makes me kind of just dig in and recognize that above all else, I'm going to build a, an even better organization that does more for more people in the right way. And so that those stories hurt. is and they, and they just make me.
1: Is dig it in. one of those things where uh, as they happen, unfortunately, the frequency at which they happen you have to grow more numb to it or do you still take it as personal now as you did? no you? It's,
0: no I, it's personal I'm, I'm not numb to any of it I'm not immune to any of it one of my best friends in the army uh, died by suicide you know it, I, 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 uh, I don't become numb I become a little bit enraged that I haven't done good enough uh, by by these people uh, and, and so I, I guess for me, numbness isn't an option it's it's not because i'm i'm running an organization whose mission is to take to keep people alive like that's like that's at the end of the day uh we're putting all into making sure people live uh today and and so there's no room for numbness you just gotta you gotta you gotta grow this thing you gotta get more clinicians you gotta get more people into care you just gotta do the right thing to get get people because i know the secret of this place And I know the goodness that it is. And you only know that if you're in it or if you've ever touched it in your life. You know how different Headstrong is from anything else you've ever done. And so I just, I I get charged up. No, the numbness is not an option.
1: You know, one of the things it says on the website, which is theheadstrongproject.org. Yeah. You know, Triumph Over Trauma. Cost-free, barrier-free, stigma-free mental health care treatment. I get the cost-free. And yep. the barrier free. When you say stigma free, uh, why is that important to denote?
0: Well, because I think it's, it's the number one barrier to care is the stigma of, of asking for help. Right. So if you if the response is like our response, you know, we we don't care where you serve, when you serve, how you serve. Like we're we're not going to judge your your military service. We we could care less. The fact is there's something going on in your life. You experience some trauma. And unfortunately for us, we've got world-class t- clinicians who know how to treat trauma. So the first step is to create a relationship with the individual. And if they're afraid to reach out and ask for help, you know, you've got to ensure that the response is one that doesn't question the, the ask for help. Like and so and, and, and so there's this there's this face of the organization that recognizes that stigma is very real. And when people finally get to the point of asking for help because their lives are broken and they, they just can't do it anymore, like you got to just embrace that. And, and so you do it a couple of different ways, Mark. One is you make sure that your clinicians are really experienced in the culture of the individuals turning to them for help. There's a lot said about cultural competency in the world today. You know, it comes in many ways, shapes and forms. Foremost for us, it's the ability to understand the military experience from any perspective, actively serving member, guard, reserve, family member, veteran, but just to understand what it meant to be that person, those people, what those experiences were like. So there's a relatability that you have to really get to quickly. And and it begins with like understanding the journey of the people who are asking for help. So I think that's one way we actively try to reduce the stigma of asking for help in the first place. And and so it's a very real thing. And we go to great lengths to do
1: it. What is uh, outside of, you know, the help of helping veterans themselves? What is the, the reward for this job for you?
0: Uh, it's on a couple of levels, Mark. One is developing the team. I go back to. Like, I, I really love working with uh, people of all walks of life. Reminds me of the Army. You come from everywhere. Yeah, You know, you inherit a team. And then as the guy running it, your, your number one job is to develop that team. Make it, you know, make it become everything that it can be. And it, that starts with people. So, you know, my goal is to, for people on this team, is to make them feel like they're part of a family that gives a crap in where they're going in their life and and underwrites their mistakes and values their performance and pushes them in a way that they become enriched in the practice of what we do. And so for me, what's professionally rewarding is to see people around me uh, flourish like, in, and have the hand that uh, on the stick that kind of guides that along. Right. So that's number one. Number two is, People get well, like I, you know, exiting people from treatment is actually a good thing. You know, it means like they're ready to go. They're ready to go. And so every day when I can open the door for someone new uh, and, and take care of someone and send them on their way, like for me, it's professionally enriching. So I guess all that kind of is best summarized is like you get to a point in your life when you realize, like I realized in the Army and throughout the course of my life, that I do exist for other people. That's, that's who I am. Like that comes at the expense of things uh, like family and, and, you know, stuff like that along the way, there can be friction points like that. But for me, my professional identity is wrapped up in the fact that I'm here for other people. And that extends to staff, teammates, our clinicians, and then all the way to clients. And so I don't need much more beyond that. I really don't. Like that's, for me, that's what it's about.
1: You know, you spent uh, 26 years in uniform. Um, And I said this several times throughout the show. Would you argue that what you're doing now is more important than any day you served in uniform?
0: Yeah, I would. You know, because this has, I talked about life or death consequences. Yeah. Every day in my life here in Headstrong, there are life and death consequences to what we do, and it's a it's a full time job uh, versus uh, a part time experience. You know, in the army where where that occurred, this is there is no downtime in this organization. There there's you know you're, you're three sixty five, you know, eighteen hours a day uh, because you want to be. Uh, and, and so I, I think for me. I recognize the value of my military service as bringing me to this point in life where because of that experience, it's valuable in in leading an organization like this and caring for the people that the organization holds dear. And and I I guess, yeah, I guess to answer the question, I, I feel like this is even more important because this is truly the people side of everything. Like it just is.
1: What's kind of a message you know, to, to veterans or service members out there who are even thinking about getting help or, or feel like they need or want to get help, how, how do you reach them?
0: Yeah, you know, look, um, I'm always asked this question, and you have to be ready. You, you're going to get to a point where everything you tried stopped working, and you're going to have to take that step. Like, you're, you're going to have to step out of your comfort zone uh, when the time comes to ask for help. And, and the good news about it is that, you know, if Headstrong ends up being a place where you you ask for help, you're going to get help. Like, And so I, I think, like, I guess I understand, like, the dilemma we confront in this country and the, the reason this is so difficult is that, a lot of people are not ready to ask for help and they just suffer needlessly because they can't crack that code that allows them to kind of step across that line with the understanding like that. I'm not going to be judged for it. I'm not going to be questioned for it. I just, you know, I'm, I'm out here flapping and I, and I, I need help. And so, you know, my message to everyone is like, and it's overused and it's, you know, everybody tries to say the same thing, but I, I guess I'll say it a different way. Like until you reach that line, I get where you're coming from. Like it's I've been there. You know, the I was afraid. You know, like I hit a point in my life, experienced failure, and I was afraid to cross that line to get back up on my feet. And uh, I can tell you in hindsight that making the decision to started up was the decision that changed my life. Like it was, it's that simple. But until you get there, Mark, I, I feel for you. Like I, if I'm, if I'm talking directly to your listeners, if you're at a point where you're not there yet, work harder to get there. You're this is work. Like life is work. Like there's
1: not a bunch of gifts all the time. The other thing I would add, and I speak to this from my own experience about not being ready, you know, I, I never, military people tend to compartmentalize very well,
0: right? We well, do it so
1: well. Mike. And because and we're, we're trained to do it. You know, this yep. goes in this box, this goes in this box, this goes in this box. And what you don't realize is all those little boxes sit in one big box. Uh, and until you unpack them all inside the big box, you don't know what's connected and what isn't. And that was the struggle for me. I never put together certain behaviors were a result of things that I had been through because they had come yeah. so second nature to me. And um, until somebody and and the truth be told, doing this podcast was a a major factor in me recognizing that because I listened to so many other people say it to me and and, and having conversations with them after recording and via text and everything else, you know, they would say, hey, Mark, you know, maybe you should go explore this a little bit deeper. Yeah. Um, And so you don't realize that a lot of these things are are connected. Um, And maybe that's why you feel like you're not ready or you don't need to be ready.
0: Well, um, yeah, so much goes into like training us to be tough, yeah. and you know, it, it's like it's, it's a whole thing, right? It's it's the culture of where we were. Like, it, leadership is designed to be tough, and you're designed to be tough. And then all of a sudden, like that tough angle, it's not working for me. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing so well. There's there's something here that you know I I just don't feel like tough is like where I am like I I, I'm weak. I'm, I'm, there's something wrong here. And so it takes a lot to kind of, uh, uh, turn away from that persona that you've become. And and so I guess for listeners, like it's who we are, but you know, we, we, we've got, we all at times end up here is my, my sense of the world today. Now, Mark, is that I'm not unique. You're probably not that unique either. Like universally, people like us at some point in our lives, it's, it's okay. We're going to need some help occasionally. So, and I didn't think I would, you probably didn't
1: think you would either. No. I mean, you know, yeah. For the record, my mom told me I was special when I was young and I believed it ever since. I'm holding to that and I'm taking it away yeah, No, I went to Catholic school. It so didn't work that way. <laughs> so, so the same here. Uh, I had a couple yeah. of priests who told me otherwise, but uh, yeah, nonetheless, exactly. I, was, I was sticking with what mom said. And I'll, I'll take that to my grave with me. But yeah. not every kid, again, uh, theheadstrongproject.org, where to go. If you guys have any questions or uh, just want to at least uh, explore you know, the idea of getting some help. This is a fantastic organization, guys. I can't endorse it enough. Um, and the people who work there, uh, they are all just fantastic human beings who have dedicated the rest of their lives uh, to improving the lives of those who need it uh, in, in the veteran space. So please check it out, the, uh, the Headstrong org. Jim, thank you so much. Uh, it's amazing to talk to you. It's great to get to know you one-on-one. I've, I've watched your work from afar and uh, I'm, I'm excited and glad that you were able to jump on with us and, and share some of your story and what you're doing now, because obviously, again, I, I hold it in a very, very high regard. And, and certainly, uh, any way I can help Headstrong out, please let me know in the future. I'd love to be part of anything that you guys need. So, uh, I, I can't thank you enough for today,
0: Mark. Thank you. It's really nice. To, uh, you know, getting a chance to kind of, uh, tell a story in front of your listeners and, and work with you along the way. So respect you deeply. and want to say thanks, uh, for everything. And, Let's stay in touch, brother, okay? Absolutely.
1: Jim McDonough, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground.
0: All right, Mark. Take
1: care.
0: You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zinno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts.